0: Brass of the spent bolter shells crinkled across the bare rockcrete floor of the firing range. Telemachus, garbage man of Ultramar, swept his broom back and forth across the floor. Telemachus had never seen an ultramarine, not once. Never even seen anything but the wake of their passing, just the spent brass on the range floor. But his job was important. He knew. He was an integral part of the functioning of the Imperium. And the emperor watched over him.
1: What's the kind of person to say a toto so? You know what? A toto so. A fucking a So <laughs>
0: Yeah, I I love I love Telemachus. I want to yeah. know more about Telemachus. I want to know about his upbringing. I want to know if being a garbage man of Ultramar is a hereditary position. Like do you <laughs> have wanna, to be born into this
2: cast? I want to know about Telemachus's brother who uh, yeah. was uh, drafted into the regular army. And well, what happened is how it depends because different PDF tides
1: happen differently on different planets. So generally, you join the PDF if you kind of don't have anything else to do. Um, or if you're a very fervently loyal imperial subject, but you report to the governor. The problem is, as soon as I don't know Hive Fleet Leviathan hoves into your sector, then like ten percent of each PDF may be drafted up into an Imperial Guard regiment, and then sent off to go get eaten by Carnifexes uh, because like I don't know some someone in the Administratum like forgot to carry a one.
0: <laughs> I so- mean, that's that's both the beauty and the tragedy of uh, of the Warhammer forty k universe is you can just be a fail son of Ultrabar and end up getting eaten by a Tyranid. Like, that's exactly. that's an entirely reasonable fate to expect for yourself.
1: Well, one of the reasons I always really like the sort of I, I, I we, we joke around about um, uh, Tides of History 40K quite a bit is that it is just is that it, they, they've they created a very fun sort of universe to imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just like imagining the uh someone like Telemachus never sees a Space marine never comes in contact with anything, probably has never been to war closest con- like closest contact with the Imperium comes from the fact that he receives like four thrones a month because his brother got <laughs> eaten by a carnifex. <laughs> exactly. of course he only actually gets those four thrones hundreds of years after his death, so maybe his great 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 grandson ends up getting a pension for someone he never knew existed um I, I, but also, I, I like this. This that there's this vast creaking galactic galaxy spanning empire that just sort of basically doesn't function at all. And the imagining of day to day life working within sort of machines that you have no idea—not I mean, just, not just physical machines, but bureaucratic machines where they're just sort of creaking away. And you, your your relationship with I don't know tax collection becomes something more like religious or a cargo <laughs> cult.
0: Yeah it's like it's it's a whole universe based on the iron law of institutions mm-hmm. which I which I love it's a it's a fully imagined universe where where like could things function better yeah probably but then people would have to give something up Mm-hmm. And the people who have an int- a vested interest in giving something up are never going to do that. No. So <clears throat> you're left in the cr- in like the creaking rotten remains of something that failed 10,000 years before. And you're just kind of playing out the string to see how mm-hmm. it goes. <laughs> like, <it's laughs> you impossible. how
2: big the Imperium is. It's, it's really hard to administrate.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, what are they going to do? You, if you start, you start an administrative reform in one place, like the light of the galaxy will have died out by the time the administrative the administrative reform reaches the other side.
1: Like uh, Patrick, I, that sounds a little like heresy to me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Talking about administrative reforms. I mean, gonna, oh yeah, it's going to uh, take I, ten thousand years for this child tax credit to reach uh, the other. <laughs> oh man, we've, we've got a means
1: test the PDF tithes. Yeah, of course. I I love the idea like um uh, 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 uh Christia Freeland takes up a new a new post as the um uh, head of the uh, as one of the high lords of Terra. Uh and 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 and, 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 and her whole thing is well, I'm going to meet with the uh, small business federation of Ultima Segmentum before. <laughs>
0: Oh my God! Yeah. Uh, oh, the, the hardworking uh, the hardworking local traders of uh, of the Cadian Gate would like to would like to have a say in the in how we're going to divide up um, the the tax credits.
2: I'm just Scaring people into voting for me by uh, telling them that my opponent is going to uh, reduce operational budget for like the Black Watch. Chaos <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. is imminent.
1: Look, if we do, look, I know nobody likes having the Eversor Temple here on the planet because of all of the mass slaughters that happen, but it's an integral part of our economy.
2: The thing with the fingers means taxes. Yeah. Um,
1: so, uh, w- welcome, welcome as ever, uh, dear listeners, uh, to, uh, to uh, a Warhammer 40,000 cast, <laughs> formerly known as the Bottleman. Uh, formerly it's known Ren- as Zorkcast. cast. Yeah. Well, hey, Zork cast <laughs> hasn't gone anywhere because uh, you find yourself listening to a podcast in front of you stands uh, stands a historian Patrick Wyman exits are north south and west and you hear bird song uh, coming from across the forest what do you do I have no idea I have no idea how to answer that question well this is actually a question for Dan or the listener uh, as they have found themselves in a game of Zork about to talk to you (laughs) Dan what do you do I'm uh, I'm mashing the talk to Patrick button (laughs) Uh, you approach, you approach Patrick, uh, he, he smiles and says to you, what's, wait, what's happening? oh you never played zork
0: i have never played zork i have no idea oh, what's happening right now you no. need
1: to, i'm gonna te- we're gonna tell you all about zork uh okay. because that is it's a it's a text-based adventure from the 1970s uh where you can talk about going north or south or west or you it's mm-hmm. software. it's the original game where you would type hit hit troll with sword okay uh, and then the text would tell you have you hit the troll with the it's the kind of game that could be played in a sufficiently complicated abacus
2: um but here. you can get eaten by a Gru, uh, oh, you don't want that.
1: Mm-hmm. No, you do not want to get eaten by a Gru. No, uh, if you can that sounds suboptimal. Yeah, no, of course. Uh, interestingly, uh, the uh, Gru was actually uh, part of a gene stealer cult that had landed on planet Zork. <laughs> <laughs> a
2: lot of there people don't know if Zork takes place in the uh, 40k universe. So. <laughs>
1: oh yeah, uh, I actually. Uh, I'm going to talk about a few other things, though, today that take place in the 40k universe. Um, One of the reasons that we brought uh, Patrick on today, um, in in addition to just uh, and and just and just we'd like to have Patrick on the Bottleman, is because I've developed a little bit of a a little bit of a thing where uh, I've been just really interested in sort of legends of uh, sort of pre-Columbian Contact among sort of uh, primarily uh, Europeans and sort of the Near East sort of claims that were made that certain people among sort of you know the the Europeans in the Near East had reached the Americas early, and if you look into a lot of these claims that get made, they tend to be uh, either they tend to be sort of very politically charged uh, in terms of the, um, the the climate of the country making the claim. So, and different countries have made these, cl- different sort of nations have made these claims from Wales to the Basques to the to f- sort of ancient Greeks or claims on behalf of the ancient Greeks made by modern Greeks uh, and so on and so on. And so I mean, obviously with, with the caveat that um, uh, you might say the Americas were completely fully discovered, settled and civilized and all this great stuff well before any any well before Columbus sailed the ocean blue by indigenous people who were then you know um, displaced and uh, uh, you know uh, basically put out by uh, by all these people, it's nevertheless instructive I think to look at the different discovery myths in some cases that are and fairy tales that sort of crop up in uh, sort of Europe and uh, the Near East. But before we do all that. Uh Dan has some uh, uh some updates uh, from our favorite um a piece of uh, memorial architecture. Our favorite uh, uh someone did correct me on its size, uh, but still a very large public park-sized um, memorial to uh the victims of communism, uh the 10 trillion and no iPhone.
2: Yeah, so speaking of um historical foundation myths that are uh, entirely politically motivated. <laughs> um So yesterday I was I was checking in with uh, with our good friends at uh, Tribute to Liberty, the organization behind the victims of communism memorial. And I was checking in to see how the pathway to liberty, um, Patrick, the pathway to liberty is uh, is a virtual uh, a virtual road of bricks. And each brick Mm -hmm. is dedicated to a different person who fell off a guard tower or uh,
1: (laughs) imagine building the school of the Americas in Habo Hotel. And you'll have exactly. something like the pathway to liberty.
2: That's that's it. So so I wanted to, I wanted to see if there are any you know shiny new bricks, any new heroes joining the ranks of fan favorites such as Nachtigal Battalion Commander Roman Shukievich or uh, Head of the Ustase Dedo Ante Pavlić, oh, who God. are who are both memorialized on this uh, publicly funded monument. Um, So it seems like Uh, Patrick, uh, you're, you're, you're very much
1: wearing an expression right now. Shall we catch you up (laughs) on,
2: on that that can't be real. That, that, oh, it's real. (laughs) (laughs) It's all real. Very real.
0: That's that's really horrifying. That's really bad.
2: It is. (laughs) And it gets worse too. Mm. Uh, (laughs) And you
1: know, that's true because this is, this is prominent social historian, Patrick Wyman saying it. This
2: isn't just us. This isn't just a podcaster and a musician.
0: That's really bad.
2: It's terrible. (laughs) Uh, So, just briefly, uh, this monument was the brainchild of uh, Alberta conservative premier Jason Kenney and um, has had kind of a tumultuous history in in parliament. Um, It was minorly defunded by the liberals when they came in but uh our deputy prime minister who is a liberal uh turned the money tap back on uh with this year's Mm. 2021 budget and now they get four million extra dollars and of course this is christia
1: freeland uh who's uh uh, who's own who's uh, from a family uh called the chomiaks descended from mihalo chomiak who edited um
2: was the biggest again? Ukrainian yes. language newspaper in the world, which uh, which also happened to be the largest Nazi propaganda organ in occupied Galicia. Yeah, it's called sure. Krakowski Vishti.
1: And then that, and uh, so basically, uh, it's there is a very deep connection between the memorial to the victims of communism, which basically aims to you know do these the victims of communism things that it usually does, which is basically say uh, that uh in fact socialism is the same as fascism uh and here are all of the people of who 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 were sort of victims of it um but many of the uh people memorialized in it tend to be or at least so, at least some of them tend to be um eastern european fascists of the sort of 30s and 40s
0: like literal yep. fascists like yes. that's the well, yeah.
1: like high the, ranking ones
0: the the Ustashi thing kills me because yeah. i i'm like the, those were just bad guys they were yes. they were really bad guys. they did lots of really bad things um, and then were actively part of the the Nazi allied government that was running the that was running that part of the Balkans like they were they were actual Nazis like yes. that's yes
2: they were I mean, we covered it on uh, a couple previous episodes, but th- like Pavlich's government was so bad uh, and I need to reiterate this they were so bad that uh they were they were told by nazi high command to cool it when they started building uh things like yezenovac concentration camp so very bad very very bad and Uh and so
1: and especially we go through this in sort of lots of previous episodes but there's a kind of direct link between like the rat lines um and uh and then like the victims of communism memorial there's a lot of sort of let's say People that show up in sort of the long histories of both projects, uh, and, and and so on and so on, and so it's sort of no surprise that we end up finding, yeah, like like not just like Pavlic and Shukevich, but like you know various Banderites and so on, getting memorialized with what is essentially, and I'm going to put on my um, going to put on my uh, fiscal conservative only about publicly funded memorials to Nazis hat our tax dollars, <laughs> yes. I mean, the Well, not mine, because I don't live in Canada, but Dan's.
0: <laughs> One of the things that kind of continually occurs to me as as kind of a broader point about this is that like just because we decide that a historical era is over doesn't mean that the people who were participants in that stopped thinking or doing the things that they were mm-hmm. doing beforehand. And I mean, like this is <clears throat> It's especially true i I mean you I think you see it most successfully in the United States with the lost cause and the Confederacy that it's like they didn't stop yeah. thinking that like it, that that they had fought a good war just because the war was over, and they successfully over the course of many decades recast that war as something that it was not in order to make themselves look and feel better yes. and like i i mean I just I never thought that that would happen quite so obviously with fascists and World War II, but it seems to be happening more. And I feel like it's prompting, at least, um, at least for me, and maybe this is just not something I ever paid attention to before, but like a reexamination of what happened to all of the former Nazis and fascists in the immediate aftermath of World War II. And I mean, mm. I feel like incredibly ignorant that, the, that this didn't occur to me before, but it's like, oh, they didn't stop believing those things or doing things to help their former friends just yeah. because the war was over.
2: Mm-hmm. And I and I think I think that's a that's a huge point. And I I think one of the reasons for for this sort of resurgence is that um, you know initially when a lot of these diaspora groups were uh, sort of injected into existing diasporas in North America. Um, so you've got rat lines. You've got in the case of Canada which, you know, we'll, I, I have a nice little example in a few minutes here of this uh, in the form of uh, one of these dedications. But you have, um, you know, quote unquote, demobilized fascists being injected into the local diaspora population, um, mm-hmm. which is also politically useful. And And this sort of historical memory was politically useful during the Cold War. Then you have a bizarre kind of drop off where uh the end of history happens Mm. and and you know uh every everything is supposed to uh sort of drifts towards this neoliberal state but then things fall apart and there is you know rising tensions with russia and the united states and china um The Soviet Union and communism is just superimposed on existing, uh, on the existing Russian state. And these people become, and their stories become useful again. They become very useful, um, to, to sort of spin a different tale and, and like cast our enemies, uh, quote unquote enemies in the proper light. Yeah, I guess you could say that, um,
1: the, the great and the good and the intelligence services, uh, of Western countries have always been willing to, um, make a sort of, you know, um, make a bargain with people who believe in a fascist Italy or a greater Galicia or, or whatever, because it's helpful in resisting, it's helpful in resisting the Russians. If anything, the period from the late thirties to the mid forties was the aberration.
2: Yes. Yes. So, I mean, we talked about the garbage man of Ultramar. I would like to talk (laughs) about the policeman of Lvov. So, um, you know in going, uh, and i have to mention uh, moss robinson uh probably the uh, preeminent um investigative journalist on on the oun and the upa and and their activities in north america he uh he was a huge help with this but um we dug up a dozen uh new dedications to ounb members so the the ounb is the organization of ukrainian nationalists Uh, a Banderite sect of uh, the original OUN. They were an armed paramilitary group. Uh, They continued fighting after the war and they kind of reconvened in North America to perpetuate this myth and, and, you know, uh, continue the fight ideologically with the help of U S and Canadian intelligence services. So um one of the people venerated in this monument is uh the Buchanist Credit Union which is the largest y- Ukrainian financial institution in Canada um it's controlled by members uh of the LUC who are again an OUNB front group um so so you know the the connections here are are very explicit they're not just um individual civilians sort of mem- memorializing family members Um, The most interesting brick that I pulled up was Roman Malaschuk. So Malaschuk was part of the command structure of the OUN expeditionary forces um, who were organized into what they called marching cells, which is exactly as bad as it sounds. Um, These cells operated out of Poland. And uh, we can remember that the actions taken out by the UPA and the OUN at this time are generally referred to as the Holocaust of bullets. So, uh, these marching cells were to act as like saboteurs, intelligence units, and essentially advance following the front lines. Uh, they were to establish local governments, uh, keep the population under control, disseminate propaganda, recruit more people into the OUN, and and basically engage the people on a mass scale. Um, this guy in particular, Roman. Worked out of the planning center in Krakow, and was tasked with administration and what they called route planning, which was the uh, the sort of tactical end of these uh, expeditionary forces. So, and and potential members of these groups were uh, expected to attend these training courses, where they learn like local dialect, Soviet literature, the state structure of the Ukrainian SSR, and local customs, and and their leadership. You know, the leadership line on this was this is uh, Yaroslav Stetsko uh, saying only those who will be able to live in our nation state who recognize our traditions, culture, and language. So they were really trying to build a, um, an ethnically and ideologically homogenous Ukraine out of their bases in Kalitsia. So this was one of those guys.
0: That's a, that's a, that's a real explicitly eliminationist type of rhetoric, right there.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it gets it gets slightly slightly worse. So like these units were tasked to observe and report like all of their time behind enemy lines and and there's I found this just short... just,
1: just a qu- a quick question yeah. here, right? I, yeah. I know you're sort of much deeper in this than I am. Yeah. So would the would these guys have been when w- w- what side were they on when, right? Cuz like the the OUN with, well, sort of, as we say, as you say, Patrick, can be an explicitly eliminationist group. They're sort of, they, they're, they're, where are they in relation to, like, Nazi Germany, for example?
2: Well, basically, before the Red Army comes in, mm-hmm. they are firmly on the side of the Nazis. Mm-hmm. Um, after the Red Army starts advancing, uh, they become, uh, you know, a rogue element in, in the eyes of, of the Reich. And a lot of their leadership is imprisoned
1: because a lot of the a, a lot of these sort of modern claims about them is like oh well i fought both the nazis and the soviets in ukraine in the second world war but you're saying it's actually more complicated than that
2: yeah yeah i mean a lot of the reasons that they they end up fighting the nazis is not because of an ideological dispute it's because you know they they feel like they are um they're losing mm-hmm. i mean that's okay. a broad generalization but um but I mean, we can see in this quote uh, from one of their from one of their reports, one of these marching groups reports that their ideology is uh, pretty much enmeshed with the ideology of the Nazi occupational forces. And this is a short report from uh Voletsk district um, from a marching group uh, from someone in one of these marching groups. And they say, in the villages, there are no Jews, but they are in the towns. They threaten to bathe in Ukrainian blood. That is why some of the localities in this district do not even sleep at, the, at their homes. They fear the Jews. Mm-hmm. And more dispatches rejoice over, like, quote-unquote, small cleansings that bring order to various hamlets. Yeah, and and so it's because, ba- again, these these guys tend to get reported as,
1: ah, well... They they fought against both the Nazis and the Communists because they really just wanted independence for Ukraine. But a lot of the a lot of the things that the OUN does, sort of the things that you're talking about, tend to get glossed over, and then you'll end up with people on people with names on the tribute on the pathway to liberty, whatever you know, people who are doing uh, tribute videos to liberty, um, who were who were at least associated with the, with groups like this and should probably and and this organization not having to make an account for it because historically we remember them as having fought both. Yep,
2: yeah, that's how like that's kind of their their exit, you know. And and they've worked really hard at equivocating communism and fascism. The last the last guy I want to talk about just briefly is is really interesting. It's uh Evan Rachonia who was he's he's got a he's got a brick now on the uh on the pathway to liberty. And Rachonia was a senior OUN figure and the former head of Ukrainian police in lvov uh, which again is, is just as bad as it sounds. Uh Richonia is interesting because he he would flee the Red Army uh to Switzerland and and directly into the loving arms of MI6 um, <laughs> who would hand him over to the CIA who he would work for until he dies of natural causes and And we could remember here too that it was it was British intelligence who encouraged the Canadian Prime Minister Mackenzie King to accept thousands of demobilized Ukrainian fascists and inject them into the Ukrainian diaspora here, creating the conditions for this fucking stupid monument like <laughs> <laughs> um. That is, that's,
1: it's, it's one of these things where it it feels like um, an intellectual lacuna, right? Where it's this bit of information, where it doesn't matter, kind of the, um, what the OUN sort of did. Uh, throughout, the, um, throughout the 20th century, right? It doesn't matter because we have the kind of official story and that official story was politically useful for sort of intelligence services uh, and, and the sort of general military industrial complex, if you want to call it that, of Western nations. And so well, there we go, we have it. And then you sort of end up memorializing people who are you know who have been who have been associated with or, with organizations like this who end up you know the police chief, the Ukrainian police chief of Lvov, uh whatever right um and you know you're be and, and either because individually they were useful sort of like like uh um uh, um uh Richonia or um or someone like you know Reinhard Galen in Germany you know they're individually useful and so they get sort of s- threaded into this wider story that either doesn't get told or it can't be integrated into a larger understanding of the history of the 20th century. It's very hard to get people to understand, to understand these things rather than as the history of items, right? It's not just points. It's not just, it's not the the that these little events are sort of quite significant and very big. And that it's it's hard to get, it's hard to incorporate these things into our understanding of the broad sweep of 20th century history. Right?
0: Uh, because that would require <clears throat> like so the 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 deep dive, the the deep dive you just did there, Dan. It, it like to make sense of the present day moment, you have to grasp kind of the intricacies of the local relationship between Ukrainian fascists, Nazis the Red Army and then Western intelligence services at this very specific moment in the middle of the 20th century and like you should do that because it's good to understand the complexity of the past and how that kind of reverberates down and how and and what parts get cut out in service of whom as time goes on but like most people are not going to do that work you know what i mean like they're going to at, at most they're going to remember nazis and or they're going to remember nazis and communists And try to, and try to thread the story back between those two opposing poles in some way that makes sense. And it's like the, but, but making sense of 20th century history and all history for that matter is a matter of teasing out those, um, those little contradictions and kind of local peculiarities. And it's no different than like, I mean, so to come back to something you were talking about all the way back at the beginning, early explorers, like, you you can't call Columbus like a Spaniard. You can't really call him Genoese. You can't really call like he's a member of a very specific seafaring community that exists at the end of the 15th century, um, mm-hmm. kind of all across the Mediterranean where your origin is not as important as the various things that you're doing. But like those are complexities of the moment in the same way that we're talking about complexities of the, you know, god awful middle years of the 20th century in, in Galicia. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, yeah, and the people the people doing the memorializing, I think, whether consciously or not, I think some of the more savvy ones are definitely doing it consciously are relying on that fact that um that this is a very difficult thing to contextualize um, I mean, if you don't want to dive in to the 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 uh specific the specifics of all those interwoven relationships, all you really need to do is remember. That uh, the person that the OUNB venerates, Stefan Bandera, is a fascist.
0: <laughs> <laughs> See, now that's the act that's that's like forgetting that part would be the err act of simplification that allows yeah. the rest of that to go. That allows the rest of that to go. Right. But like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm really fascinated by this because. It's, it's all about memory as an active thing, right? That like we pick yes. and choose what we remember. We pick and choose what order we remember those things in, um, what we choose to emphasize and what we don't. Like it's the, it's the like Seinfeld-esque yada, yada, yadaing of particular parts of history <laughs> in order to get to, in order to get to the parts that you do like and you do want to commemorate. Like, I don't know. I, so. I think about my grandpa, whom I, whom I loved. He, he, my grandpa served in World War II, and he was always kind of very funny about the, the things that he talked about and the things that he remembered. Like he was based in Greenland and he flew bombers looking for submarines. They never found a submarine. Not once. Okay. Um, in all of the years in all of the years that he was there, but they did accidentally depth charge a whale. Like that was yeah. his that was my grandpa's big World War II thing is we thought it was a submarine. We dropped the depth charge. It, it was just a whale. That was Oh, was it a Nazi
2: um, whale?
0: It could have been. Could have been, who knows, who knows which way the humpbacks were leaning in those days. Uh, but, but it's like, I, I, you know, that was my, that was the very specific kind of story that my grandpa chose to present about his time in world war II, not about like grand ideological conflicts, not about, um, you, you know, any, anything else. It was, it was the whale, it was being cold in Greenland. That was the kind of, that was the memory that he preserved to pass down. And I don't know what he left out. Um, I don't know yeah. if there was other stuff. I don't know. Maybe they did shoot a submarine. Maybe they did blow up a submarine. I have no idea. Like, but he didn't say, and yeah. he had, and he had his reasons for wanting to present it the way that he did that were in accordance with his personality and his socio, his sociocultural background and and the audience that he was speaking to, which was me as like a seven year old, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I remember my, my, my grandfather had to, his. He sort of abbreviated his uh, World War II career as a naval officer to uh, when he came back, he refused to eat tin fish ever again. That's all I know about it. I know that he was on a mine sweeping ship and that he refused to eat tin fish ever again. That's I mean, it. I
0: can't, I can't blame him for that, just as a general principle, whether that's derived from your World War II service or not.
1: <coughs> yeah, um, fair enough. <laughs> but um, <laughs> look, I, I think the other thing, right, is, you know, it, it's you can use such phrases like fought against both the Nazis and the communists to elide to sort of to, and cause you can know when you're talking about history, you can know what, how people will take certain true things that you say and what conclusions they'll draw from them. So for example, saying something like fought against both the Nazis and the communists, you think that that person is basically a liberal, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's what that, and that's sort of what that ends up sounding like. But in the case of someone who's with the OP, with the, the UPA or OUM, their goals were actually reestablishing Ukraine as like a Nazi-aligned but entirely independent state that included bits of Poland and Belarus and Russia and so on and so on. And yep. so then, like like we say, the the veneration of sort of the, of people associated with these organizations becomes much more difficult unless what you're actually trying to do is you're relying on people making that. Assumption based on what you've said,
0: and and you're also relying on a fair bit of ambiguity in terms of what the word fought means, right? Like, what does it mean to say that you fought against the Nazis or you fought against the Soviets? Like those can like that word can encompass
2: a whole lot of different things. Um, I mean, uh, unfortunately, a lot of the, the the combat that took place, you know, was not between regular armies. Was between these armed paramilitary groups. Uh, I mean, between is doing a lot of work here, but between these armed paramilitary <laughs> groups and the fucking civilian population. So, I
0: mean, th- so I read over the summer uh, Svetlana, Ale- Svetlana Alexievich's "The Unwomanly Face of War" on yeah. which is well, just like is great. It's it's one of the most harrowing fucking things I've ever read in my life um but like th- her descriptions or or the well the the witnesses descriptions of partisan conflict in the Soviet Union and Ukraine is just it is the most horrifying shit i've ever read and it's like but you can easily imagine so there's one part where she this one of the people that she's talking to describes um how the nazis destroyed a village and they they cut off the legs of the of the suspected partisans and left them kind of sitting like upright um, it just just the boots with the legs still in them but like you can easily imagine how let's say one of the Nazis who did that survives and goes back home and 20 years later he's talking about oh yeah I fought I, I fought the Soviets and like mm-hmm. the, but the word fought can cover up a lot of uh, can cover up a lot of shit there
1: yeah mm-hmm. absolutely yes and for and for a uh, you might say a uh, the various like you know NATO countries that want to that sort of understand the world as a as a place of conflict, where they must, you know, proactively imperialize in order to avoid themselves getting proactively imperialized, or that seems to be kind of the the logic that abides in most of these, like you know, um, um, defense think tank circles, is that that again, that that ambiguity is sort of selectively deployed in the when you're talking to the New York Times, it's all about uh, competition and balancing, but maybe when you're talking to one another, it gets somewhat more, you know. Uh, specific
2: let's say uh i was gonna say you know I, th- I think another once you understand this stuff it's it's depressing to see the the sort of long resonant echo of what the OUN's vision of ukraine was because everyone all of these actors had a different vision for this heavily contested geographical region right um with the, the you know the OUN's vision for ukraine is being kind of borne out in the modern in in the modern post-Maidan Ukrainian state where some of the more hardline elements in in the existing government see it as Galicia all the way to Crimea where you know we all know Ukraine even pre-Soviet was a very large very tenuous multi-ethnic region in central Europe that had Tatars that had you know Persians Jews like <laughs> So yeah.
0: Well um, the, sh- sorry, I mean that's that's one of those things like the the myth of the the myth of the the kind of the ethnically pure nation state is is an act of creation. Like you're they're trying like the it's not a reflection of some sort of actual lived past. It's it's an attempt to will it into existence by selectively rewriting that past.
2: Yes. Yeah, and this monument is uh, is definitely part of that historical memory project.
1: Yeah, well, it's it's that you know you 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 create historical memory to try to give you political space to do, to maneuver in the present, mm-hmm. and you know I mean uh, Canada is sort of actively doing that. It's actively doing that in in collaboration with you know um, sort of third third sector organizations who are you know descended. Or or descended or share people in common or whatever with some of these groups we're talking about. Um, But why don't we talk a little more about uh, historical memory? Uh, Because I want to talk about uh, uh, something that's not twentieth century history. No
2: more of that. Uh, We're going uh, 40th century history. Let's go. (laughs) (laughs) I think you mean. Let's talk about the emperor, baby.
1: That's still Warhammer. Four (laughs) thousand. I think we mean um 400th uh, uh uh century we need more more we need 400th century um but you know, we're going to talk about uh, a little bit about uh 10th century 6th century BC uh uh, uh 7th century other such centuries because um we are going to be talking about these pre-Columbian European and Near Eastern pre-Columbian contact myths um right so uh just just to sort of, um, just to sort of do a little uh, table setting. Sort of, what do we understand as like the standard pre-Columbian uh, contact myth?
0: Yeah. So the standard, the the only one for which there for which there is actual good verified evidence are is, um, is people of Scandinavian descent um, going first to Iceland and then in some combination to Greenland and the eastern coast of what is now Canada. Now, that's, there's, there's archaeological evidence for this. There's evidence in the Norse sagas. Um, that is the only case of pre-Columbian European contact that is, that is 100% certain, but the extent of those contacts is unclear.
1: Mm-hmm. And also, I think it's useful to point out, as you sort of did earlier, right, that um, the, the, we, see, we seem to see most of these claims being made in history as claims being made on behalf of a nation. Uh, as to say, ah, the, the Swedes or the, or the Icelandic were first to discover uh, America, or Columbus was an Italian uh, Genoese who was the first to discover America. But as you say, the primary identity of people in these times would have been much more connected to other things. And I think a good example of this is there has recently been an, uh, there has been an, an Irish attempt to claim sort of uh, first European contact, if you yes. like, on <laughs> behalf of St. Brendan in the 6th <laughs> century. Um, who was a a monk, a very powerful uh, head of a monastic order in Ireland, um, who wrote a a book that is sort of short name is the Navigatio, um, which was, or he didn't write this book rather. This book was written in the ninth century as an account of his, t- of his travels in the sixth. Um, and what, and, and, and then this sort of uh, this story sort of gains and regain. It, it's never goes away, really. This myth until um, the point, and actually in the nineteen seventies, a guy called uh, Tim Severin uh, aimed to um, actually recreate his voyage. So they put together a canoe made of ox hides, and then um, actually <laughs> try, uh, called a kara, and then tried to sail that canoe made of ox hides, uh, to Newfoundland, uh, which is quite interesting then using the um and the idea was that saint brendan used the uh, islands of the north atlantic as like stepping stones because obviously you couldn't just sail a canoe across Now, so just just initially right what um what do you think of of this of the saint brendan myth
0: so i think there is a there is a sense in which it preserves the kind of folk memory of the fact that there was stuff beyond ireland right <clears throat> that there there were islands there were I, I mean it's not it like the sea was not an unknown quantity to the people who lived along the, let's say the west coast of Ireland in the 6th century you know like they knew that they could go out and catch fish they knew that if they went out further that the sea had other things to offer um they they were perfectly capable of being blown off course they they had some basic idea of how to navigate so like in a technical sense it's not at all impossible to believe that St. Brendan or some other sixth century Irish person made their way deep into the North Atlantic, if not all the way to Canada. Like mm-hmm. yeah. now that's it's entirely possible to believe that just as it's entirely possible to believe that Vikings went much further than than uh, than kind of the the northeastern coast of Canada in their in the course of their their voyages um, across the Atlantic. Like that's it's entirely possible to believe that the question is never whether it was feasible or possible. Like the question is, what does it mean for whom? What, what evidence do we have of it? Um, how is it being deployed in the service of which community? I mean, in the se- the case of the St. Brendan one, it's always been fairly clear. That's like, this is about making Irish Americans feel good about themselves yes. um, <laughs> and making, and making the modern Irish feel good about themselves and kind of rebuilding the evidence of or rebuilding a, a, a connection that in the seventies after, you know, <clears throat> The better part of a century after the last big wave of Irish immigration is um a connection that may seem to be waning for
1: some folks,
0: but it's right. about kind of re reestablishing that that kind of deep cultural connection
1: yeah and it's um and also I think there's this i I tend to think that especially when it comes to history there's the there there's the popularity of the desire for for something to have happened in in history that you sort of seems like fun, but I think there's also a real sense of um, I think there's a real sense among uh, that that's especially that we've come across in the last few decades that a lot of the big fun action packed events of history have kind of been discovered. You know, there's no yeah. grand battle that you're going to uncover. There's no, there's no <laughs> heroic king whose deeds are sort of yet to be described. Whereas, in fact, there is the much more interesting um, sort of evidence of, say. And interrogating how people actually lived, maybe understanding mm-hmm. Plutarch in a non-literal way.
2: Um I'm, I'm just thinking of the anti-urge, the opposite of that, which is Morozov's missing time theory, where he's like, nothing was <laughs> happening in Kievian Rus during this period, therefore Charlemagne does not exist.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh I, my god. I love I, I love all of that stuff because it's like radiocarbon dating is real. Like you mean like this is can't can't falsify it can't fake it like we like we know we know how old that stuff is uh but like the but yeah it's it's this really this really fascinating impulse to try to to try to discover firsts and kind of these random isolated events and like part of me a part of me kind of struggles to understand it because like i can intellectually grasp that like oh this is an interesting thing it makes for an interesting kind of one-off story but for me I guess to to put on my historian hat like mm-hmm. I don't th- I like what are what are what's meaningful to me about the past are aggregates and kind of repeated actions um that 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 it's patterns that that make up the fabric of our world the decisions that people repeatedly make the things that they repeatedly do the routes they repeatedly travel so like it's not that the other stuff doesn't matter but it's like what, what's the point of it? Like, okay. So St. Brendan went across the, uh, went across the Atlantic. Maybe he came back. Maybe his canoe was, maybe his canoe was covered in oxides. Like, that's great. That's fantastic. Good for you, St. Brendan. But it's not like it speaks to the existence of like transatlantic trade networks in the sixth century. Um, Maybe it speaks to some sense of the imaginary, but we don't know what that is because we don't have primary sources that describe that, that talk or or ways into the minds of sixth century Irish people that talk about the ways in which St. Brendan expanded their horizons by by having gone on these voyages. Those are things that like, even if the one-off event happened, the impact of it is unknowable to us because it's a one-off event.
1: Yeah. And and I think that's and the, the one-off events make for big stories. And when I say sort of the big events of history, sort of we know, about, I'm sure that there are still big events of history left to discover, but you can see like there are the, the, the idea of finding these one-off events, these historically interesting one-off events, like things that happen in leading capitals, you know, the, the the first contact with America by Europeans, you know, it's it's very tempting to be the person that proves that wrong. And then I think there's also a real kind of dopamine hit, I suppose, you get if you read the Navigadio and you're like, ah, well, he talks about great crystalline towers in the sea. Those must be icebergs. And, mm-hmm. and then and you begin to sort of work backwards, sort of assuming that all of that is true. And Yeah, I mean, look—if someone's writing about big crystalline towers in the sea, they are probably talking about icebergs. But could be uh, air guide poisoning, though. Yeah, <laughs> but, but I think there's there's a there's a sort of desire to look at a book that talks of crystalline towers in the sea or the island of sheep or whatever, and sort of fit that onto stuff that you can find to sort of be ah maybe it is true, which is sort of the opposite of how falsificationism works. Um, so let's let's talk about another couple. Um, there was a, uh, a there was the the story of the discovery of uh, of uh, quote unquote discovery of uh, the new world by um, the Welsh prince uh, Mad Dog Mad Dog Mad Dog <laughs> Prince Mad Dog Ab Owain Gwyneth in eleven seventy. Uh, so a little after after the sort of Vinland settlements at uh, Laso Meadow, um, uh, much after the legendary voyage of Saint Brendan, um, we have. This Elizabethan legend that sort of becomes very popular in the sort of uh, 16th and 17th centuries of a Welsh prince um, who uh, who was sort of one of many many children who is sort of the greatest of those children um, and who upon um, upon sort of the the death of his father sort of proves himself uh, by uh, sailing to the new world and much like in St Saint, Saint, how St Brendan was immortalized in a po- in a, a piece of sort of a, a allegedly historical writing written several hundred years after his death so too was uh Prince Mad Dog um uh, remembered by Robert Southey in an epic poem uh named for him uh written again hundreds of years later when uh, uh New England and Spain were both contesting who has Who of uh, which one of them has the sort of imperial claim to the new world?
0: This is another one where like you can see the faint outlines of possibility, right? Like you could build a ship in Wales in 1170 that would have been perfectly capable of taking you around the rim of the North Atlantic to the new world like that's entirely feasible the technical knowledge existed among people who were living in that particular world to in to do sea voyages of of long distances right like mm-hmm. that's all perfectly possible it's even possible that a welsh prince got on a ship and did it what's the what's the evidence for this aside from a much later claim was this part of a, a hitherto lost World of North Atlantic seafaring that, that would have some real genuine bearing on the way that we understand, uh, the high middle ages, the, the early and high middle ages. Um, or is this a story that's being made up for, for the consumption in the 16th and 17th century for a very specific kind of present day audience that, that is going to understand it in a very specific set of ways in the context of like imperial, like would be imperial competition, like, those are all hmm. the different layers to that and they're they're interesting in different ways. I mean, I feel like was there a, a hitherto undiscovered world of kind of North Atlantic seafaring that we don't know about that existed entirely in oral tradition and like undiscovered shipwrecks waiting to be found 10,000 feet under the North Atlantic? Like I'm less I'm I'm less convinced about that, but like there's a difference between plausible and like, oh yeah, this totally changes our understanding of how history went. Like you know Mm -hmm. like there's a like in 1487 right the the king of portugal funded a voyage by a flemish guy named ferdinand van Ullman. um and van Ullman pitched essentially the same idea that columbus had several years earlier presumably uh the king of portugal disliked the flemish guy less than he did columbus he thought columbus was an asshole Mm -hmm. um and he's like oh yeah sure okay you can sail sail west out out into the atlantic sure what you know we'll we'll give kind of a standard commercial deal. This is great. Van Ullman is never heard from again. Mm -hmm. Van Ullman probably died and his crew probably died somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic. But let's say that they made it to the new world, right? Like, first of all, how would we ever know that? Like, what are the chances of us finding Van Ullman's ship, you know, 600 years later or finding some piece of scattered evidence of it washed up on a beach that has since been eroded and pounded by hurricanes, you know, for centuries and centuries and centuries? But let's say he made the journey, right? Like they got there. Okay, that's again, that is a one-off story. That's like that's like a great that's a great feature article in the New Yorker, right? But that Mm -hmm. doesn't change our understanding of the end of the fifteenth century of any of the kind of broader patterns that go along with that.
2: Mm.
1: But and then the story it doesn't change our understanding as historians, but it does change the understanding politically as people return to the mad dog story several times. So um, the mad dog story is is told sort of by, in, in the 18th century, for example, um, by Presbyterian ministers who want to claim that there is almost like some kingdom of Prester John um, just upriver from Mobile, Alabama, of <laughs> descendants of, um, of Mad Dog and his, and his Welsh colonists, right? And they'll use this by, by finding all of the, um, all of the words in the language from that area that sound like Welsh words uh well ignoring all the ones that don't and, <laughs> uh and 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 then um in fact, in fact he said in 1791, uh, William said, Word, words in common use on different parts of the continent, which are very near or undeniably Welsh in both sound and sense, could not have happened by chance, to which I argue, of course it could have.
2: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, this is uh, this is just a minor version of like the, the, the goat version of this, which is Mormonism, you know? <laughs> That's true. Wh- where, it, where it's just like, there's this American urge, uh to sort of write yourself into the foundation myth of this of, of this this country, even more than already exists. And and with Mormonism, it's just like, oh, we'll just make it out of whole cloth, whatever, you know? <laughs> I'm I'm
0: now imagining a future in which a resurgent Flanders is trying to justify <laughs> their claims across the Atlantic and rediscovers <laughs> and repurposes the legend of Ferdinand Van Ullman. Um, and oh his voyage, God. that's like the, the, the cloth mills of Flanders are going once again, they're providing the basis for international power and, and buddy, they've got a claim on Trinidad and Tobago.
2: Like you, that's the, you better yeah. not lay this into existence, because yeah. I do not want to live in a world where all official correspondence is in fucking Flemish. I love that. Uh, <laughs> we're going to talk again language. about language. Yeah, v- Van Telemicus, the
1: uh, garbage man of the Hague. Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> but, um, yeah so how yeah, this myth proceeds? The proceed, national person. anthem becomes a gabber track.
1: God. So how this myth proceeds? Right. Is we start with. Sort of probably, you know, an actual mad dog who maybe was a seafaring prince. You know, easy, easy to think about. Perhaps, like we said, maybe he washed ashore in America and then was like, wow, or like like the Bahamas or whatever, and then left. It's perfectly, perfectly capable of doing that one-off event that could generate no evidence and has no significance. But these legends they sort of evolve, right? So I say a few hundred years later, he's commemorated in the poem, right? And then. Uh, sort of a, a English, uh, English sort of colonists in America then start coming back to England telling tales of uh, the Welsh Indians. Right. And then the British press, uh, as as sort of scuzzy and shitty as they were as they were then, as they are now, um, takes this story and then runs with it saying, ah, it turns out the Spanish claim on discovering the Americas is false. And again, this is happening in 1660. And if we want to know what, where power is shifting in 1660, it should, it's shifting from sort of, um, it's shifting from Portugal to Spain, to the Netherlands, to England. And we have, this, we have this, this story that says, ah, it was actually England all along. So it's much, much less of, so the story of Mad Dog is much less a story about who went to America when uh, and more a story of who has an interest in recasting themselves as the natural masters of the glo- globalization process, right? And so the, the story itself is, is quite amusing. or um, Morgan Jones... Uh, says that he set out through the wilderness uh, from uh, sort of the American South and they passed through the territory of a local indigenous tribe. Uh, that night, quote, they carried us to their town and shut and shut us up close to our, our no small dread um, and, told, and told he was to be executed. Jones cried out in his native language, Welsh. Have I escaped so many dangers, and must I now be knocked on the head like a dog? Uh, so I, I didn't know that um, uh, there was a Branson in that organization <laughs> that expedition. Uh, one of his captors the then approached Branson. him and said in Welsh that Jones should not die. Instead, he took back took him back to his home, where Jones happily conversed with them familiarly in the Welsh language, and then preached to them three times a week in the same language. And so that's the sixteen hundreds story. Right, that there are these that the, that it was Welsh all along who did it, but but then there's another story that comes up much later, right, and the, that's more of an 18th century story that sort of still holds today, right? Which is essentially that, um, uh, 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 which is that oh the there are the 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 white Indians if you like as they were they were called you know again this doesn't account for the fact that like. There is a sort of large diversity of people, not all of them look the same because you might imagine that they do. Um they say, ah, oh, well, they're they're blue eyes and so on. And again, this idea of uh, sort of white people as some of the initi as as indigenous to America comes back and it becomes very popular in the American South. Um and some of the evidence for it is ah uh, yes there are sort of fortresses along this river in uh, up upriver in the Missouri River that look like uh, Welsh fortresses that you know, the people that the native people wouldn't have had the, the technology to build. It's okay, like it's or closed. potentially they did have the technology to build them because they're there. <laughs> <laughs> like there they are, <laughs> they're right there. They're, you look and and that's the and that's one of the reasons why like a lot of these myths about well white people were actually the original indigenous people of um, north america that sort of you know come up in as you say Dan in mormonism or in the story of mad dog uh, as it's used by the english and now the daughters of the american revolution who put up a big sign commemorating the welsh there's true there is a sign in america in the american south in memory of prince mad and this was put up in 53 by the way so if you're interested in claiming that white people are indigenous to indigenous to america in 1953, you would put up a sign like this. In memory of Prince Madoc, a Welsh explorer who landed on the shores of Mobile Bay in 19, and 1170 and who left behind, along with the Indians, the Welsh language. Authority uh, authority is Encyclopedia Americana, copyright 1918, blah, 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 blah. Uh, but that this Richard Hacliut. A Welsh historian and geographer uh, gives his history of the world as well as ancient Roman coins found in forts in Tennessee. These forts resemble the forts of Wales of the 9th and 10th centuries and of the white Indians of the Tennessee and Missouri rivers. So the plaque was put up in 53 and taken down in 73, <laughs> taken down uh, in me, at 73, in uh, 1988
2: got to watch out for those geographers, man. It's like uh, the PPC yeah. candidate in my uh, home writing, Marcus Hecht, you know, uh, <laughs> published an article in the Toronto Sun, so racist and uh, ahistorical, they had to retract it.
1: Yeah. And it's the, um, and they say, uh, this is from the uh, um, Welsh American Society. Millions of Welsh Americans know of this historical event that took place in Alabama and spend their vacations in the Mobile era, all because one of their own can lay claim to being the first European who really discovered America um and it's it just seems huh right, right. <laughs> i'm i'm in
0: love with the idea of mobile alabama using this as a tourist um incentive to draw to draw the masses of welsh americans proud welsh americans to the shores of mobile <laughs> bay
1: <laughs> well if you i mean on the one hand if you want to sort of just you know create a create a story of a people uh, these foundation myths are a great way to do it you know the oh, yeah. there there is we we have sort of different there are different american peoples have different foundation, foundation myths and madoc is you know uh is it could be used if you wanted to create a Welsh American people that was as distinct from Anglo Americans or Wasps or uh, Irish Americans or Italian Americans or whatever, all of whom have their different stories. Like this is going to be a great way to do it. It's just unfortunately, it's also part of a wildly racist mission <laughs> to because it's it's a number of things, right? Where I, I think if you want to claim, if you want to make the imperialist claim that you are somehow more worthwhile. Right, that your presence, that your presence on the top of this, you know, order of exploitation, is is sort of natural because of the evolved nature of who you are. Then it's really helpful for your theory if you can find other examples of evolved peoples outside of your um, outside of your area. You know, if you want to make the claim that Christendom is um, is, is supposed to be, you know, the that Christendom has a has a destiny to rule the world. It's really helpful if Christendom is uh, has little pockets elsewhere that require uh, a, a, a protecting and um, a, 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 a sort of exploration to find. Um, so I, I I know we're we're running slightly long, so I'm going to quickly run through the last couple in the, in less than three minutes uh, because Speed of course run. we have the Greeks in 56 AD. There is a claim in Plutarch that um, that that basically that, that a Greek ship could have. Sorry, claims made in in, in, in De Faci by Plutarch describe a particular star pattern that could only have been observed by Greeks, uh, by Greek sailors, if they were around Newfoundland in a certain time. And that's good enough evidence for me, and certainly does change things,
2: as you say. Patrick. This shit is all just Balkan YouTube comments. Like, if yeah. you really want to <laughs> understand this, go to Balkan YouTube comments and and watch an Albanian teenager yell about how um, you know uh, Skanderberg invented the first sewing machine um,
1: <laughs>
2: to shame the Macedonians. You know. <laughs>
1: so it says um, uh, uh, the the last thing it says uh, that uh, one character. A, a character in Plutarch recounts meeting a stranger who had recently returned from. so it's already third hand or fourth hand <laughs> uh, account, uh, 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 let's see uh, accounts meeting a stranger who had recently returned from a long voyage to a distant great continent according to the stranger new travelers would make the trip once every 30 years when the planet Saturn disappeared in the constellation Taurus some travelers stayed behind in the continent and would have returned so based on this close reading of Plutarch's text um, uh, what's his name uh Ioannis Ioannis Lirtzis and his colleagues claim that this great continent was North America, and that you, they use their knowledge of astronomy to make the claim. Uh, which is, yeah, again, that's certainly falsifiable.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like <clears throat> even if it's true, so the fuck what? Like the like what is the what is the broader historical impact of that aside from the way in which it it serves the interests of 21st century Greeks? To soothe, to soothe and salve the egos of
1: 21st century mm-hmm. greeks like what is that historians as well yeah, historians I'm, who want to make a fun discovery yeah i mean like oh so it I, kills I think me. as we come as we come to the end of course i think it is it is always between uh, racist myth making
2: or harmless fun but none <laughs> yes. of it is good history
1: not <laughs> <laughs> bad none history
2: of <laughs> I'll tell you what, anyway. I want to hear more about the garbage man of uh, Ultramar. You uh, know, I wanna know I wanna know how the end of his life uh happens. I wanna I wanna know his trials and tribulations.
0: I mean, a lot of he's got a lot of bolter shells to sweep up. That's the that is that is the essence of Telemachus garbage man of ultramar's challenges.
1: Um it's just a never-ending tide of them. Mm-hmm. And if you like tides, uh, you should check out Tides of History, <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> the fantastic podcast that Patrick does. Uh, oh, I can only you. recommend it. Um, but with all that being said, uh, Patrick, thank you so much for coming and hanging out with us today.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's an
1: absolute pleasure. Yeah, Perfect. Thank you, man. Uh, And don't forget, we have a Patreon, $7 a month to get a second episode every week. Uh, This week, our bonus episode is going to be all about, uh, a little more about the National Security Industrial Complex and just what the McDonald-Laurier Institute wants. Uh, So do check that out in a couple of days. Later, everybody. Later.